0: This episode of Astorium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com slash history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com slash history. And start your journey into podcasting right. If you look at the collective knowledge of humanity, you'll see an obvious exponential path with a few breakthroughs that change everything. One of those breakthroughs happened about 50,000 years ago, when humans began attributing symbolic meaning to certain things by using different vocal utterances. Today, we call that language. Language allowed a tribe of humans to quickly transfer information about their environment to each other and also teach future generations things that previous generations had to learn the hard way. Certain humans would learn clever tricks, and eventually, these would spread using language. The clever tricks eventually turned into a bow and arrow, animal domestication, and agriculture. Language allowed humanity's collective intelligence to rise dramatically over time. The next leap occurred about 6,000 years ago, with the advent of writing. Now, information could not only be transferred to other humans through direct social interaction, but also through indirect observations of symbols on a surface. Now, knowledge wasn't limited to a group's collective intelligence, but could be spread to other groups and could last for generations. Human knowledge could now take a physical form. Because of writing on scrolls and in books, Each generation began life with a higher floor of knowledge and technology than the last, and this progress only continued to accelerate. Most humans wrote on scrolls. These scrolls were naturally incredibly valuable, not just to the owner of the scroll, but to all of humanity. And about 2,500 years ago, a group of people tried to amass all of humanity's collected knowledge in one single place. This week, we'll explore the legendary Library of Alexandria, and how its rise and fall deeply impacted the ancient and modern world. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium, Episode 32, The Greatest Tragedy in History. In the 3rd century BCE, Alexander the Great conquered the Mediterranean and then much of the Western world. His armies swept through ancient cities, leaving Greek culture in their wake. However, in Egypt, Alexander created a whole new city from the ground up. It was built from scratch, near the bay, with the Greeks designing every part of it. The city was named Alexandria, and I bet you can guess why. After Alexander died from an unknown illness, his sprawling empire was divided up amongst his generals. One of Alexander's most prominent generals, Ptolemy of Lagos, ruled over roughly a third of Alexander's conquered lands. He oversaw most of North Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean from Alexandria, in Egypt. Ptolemy and his descendants all revered knowledge. Not knowledge for the sake of power or persuasion, but knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Because of this, a massive library was created near the harbor in Alexandria. This library, which actually more closely resembled an enormous university campus, was dedicated to the Muses, the nine goddesses of art and inspiration. The goal of the massive library was an ambitious one. Collect and store every piece of human knowledge in the world. The Ptolemaic dynasty had to collect immense wealth to fund this colossal goal. But funding the library became less of a problem. When the city of Alexandria began to explode in population, the city was soon one of the biggest and wealthiest in the world. Rather than merely describe details of the library, I'd like to take you, dear listener, on a tour of the entire library in its heyday, just so you can have a glimpse of the great library's magnificence and enormity. You arrive at Alexandria how most do, by sea. The trireme you're in is packed with travelers from faraway lands. Above the deck of the small ship, you see the glimmer of the sunrise. As the light gets brighter, you realize that that isn't the sunrise. It's a massive fire, burning through the pre-dawn fog and darkness. This roaring fire sits atop a nearly 400-foot-tall building. This was the famed Pharos of Alexandria, the Great Lighthouse. This is by far the tallest building you've ever seen. Massive mirrors behind the burning fire aim the light out to sea. To the east, you now see the actual sunrise. Lit by the lighthouse and the now pink and orange clouds from the rising sun, you see the sprawling harbor on the shore before you. As the ship pulls into the docks, you see hundreds of ships from unfamiliar ports across the Mediterranean, loading and unloading cargo on the docks. The smells of tar, canvas, and fish wash over you. The harbormaster, along with men in bright robes, board your ship. As is custom, every single scroll or tome must be surrendered to the library. They assure everyone that a copy will be made from whatever you give, and they will be returned. Several scrolls are taken from the captain's quarters for copying. Do you have any scrolls on you? Because if you do, I'd suggest giving them up now. After crossing the gangplank onto the dock, you see it. Towering above the harbor, lit by the morning sun, are several massive buildings, all of obvious Greek design. That's the library. Or just a glimpse, really. It's part of a much, much larger campus. Let's head that way now. You follow the group of travelers to the left, towards the city, Men and women carrying all forms of food, spices, jewelry, and trinkets walk towards the enormous market near the harbor. Upon entering, your nostrils are now assaulted by a cacophony of exotic scents and odors. Your ears as well are assailed by people talking, yelling, bargaining, laughing, and arguing in many different languages. Your senses are being bombarded from all sides. I hope you're not an introvert. You make your way through the crowds and the market, eventually arriving at a staircase leading up to a large building. You notice a group of men carrying large bags of rolled-up sheets. That's papyrus. The library actually has a monopoly on the papyrus trade because of how many papyrus scrolls they require. You'll see why soon. After reaching the top of the large marble staircase, you see a huge garden sprawled out around the massive library building. The garden is full of exotic plants and carefully curated greenery. Several botanists along the pathway trim trees and collect herbs. Upon leaving the garden, you begin ascending the steps to the main library chamber. Outside you see dozens of scribes taking a break from their often tedious tasks. You now enter the Great Library. Towering above you, on either side are gigantic shelves reaching all the way up to the ceiling. Each shelf is filled to the brim with hundreds of papyrus scrolls. Each scroll contained 2,000 lines of writing. The entire library contained roughly 400,000 scrolls. To put that in perspective, there were only 30,000 books in all of Europe in the 15th century. In the center of the hall sits a huge table where scribes sit discussing and reading various scrolls, confirming various translations and sources. The head librarian continuously catalogs the enormous collection. Off to the side, scribes are hard at work copying scrolls from those seized at the harbor. The inscription at the top of the shelves, in Greek, reads, The Place of the Cure of the Soul. The sheer enormity of the shelves lined with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of scrolls is dizzying. Going through the library, we reach the main plaza with hundreds more people talking, discussing, or reading scrolls. Once you cross the plaza, you can see some of the other parts of the library. See, the library isn't just a library, it's so, so much more. As you walk through the plaza, you notice how many different people there are here. Greeks, Egyptians, Arabs, Jews, Africans, and Persians. Almost every skin color, language, and culture you could imagine could be found somewhere here. After crossing the beautiful mosaic tiles of the plaza, you arrive at another large marble building. Upon entering, you notice various strange chemical smells. This building is split into several large chambers. To the left, where most of the smells seem to be coming from is the anatomy lab. Here Herophilus first scientifically observed the inner workings of human cadavers. This is where it was discovered that thoughts came from the brain and not the heart. The famous Greek physician Galen worked here and performed the first recorded human dissections. He is considered by many to be the father of several fields, including anatomy, medicine, and physiology. You suddenly hear a muffled scream. I wouldn't go in there if I were you. This way. Over here is where the astronomers and astrologers study. Men walk between various scrolls and tomes. Massive primitive star charts are stretched over several portions of the walls. Astrological symbols are painted over several parts. A huge primitive astrolabe lies in the corner. Men here were the first to discover that the sun was the center of the solar system and that the earth was, in fact, a globe. An astronomer, Eratosthenes, calculated the circumference of the Earth in this period and was only about 10% off Earth's actual circumference. Pretty incredible, right? I wouldn't mention to anyone in here that some people, thousands of years later, still believe the Earth is flat. In the next chamber, you'll see the mathematician's quarters. Some of the most profound discoveries in all of mathematics were made right here. Euclid, the father of Euclidean geometry, studied here and even worked with Ptolemy, the leader of Alexandria. When Ptolemy asked for an easier way to solve complex equations, Euclid proclaimed, there is no royal road in mathematics, implying that mathematics is difficult, but is equally accessible to everyone. Many mathematical breakthroughs that were made here are still in use today. We'll see some applied mathematics real soon. You now reach an open part of the building with a large field filled with various wooden and metal contraptions alongside it. Here, people studied physics and engineering. Most of their research was geared towards catapults, ballistas, and war machines, because that was what was in demand from the city-states. Here, the engineers developed siege weapons that were far ahead of their time. Archimedes was one of the most prominent engineers that worked here, and his inventions created an arms race of war machines. Using knowledge from the library's thousands of scrolls, breakthroughs were made with levers, pulleys, and pumps, all building blocks of the modern world. A primitive steam engine was even created here. Some of the most famous engineers and inventors from antiquity worked right here. You hear a strange noise coming from another garden nearby. Oh, you'll love this. You walk down an ornate marble staircase and into yet another garden. However, this garden seems less maintained than the other. You notice large fences separating different areas of the garden. Suddenly, an enormous gray figure emerges from the trees. Upon seeing the horn, you immediately recognize it as a rhinoceros. Don't worry, there's a fence between you and him, and it's probably strong enough. Although you can tell this creature is a rhino, people from across the Mediterranean would be amazed by this strange and exotic animal. Continuing on, you pass by a small lake with several gray bumps near the shore. One of the smaller bumps attempts to climb up on the back of another. It's a hippo. From a ledge, an ancient zookeeper pours chunks of fruit into the enclosure. The hippos saunter out of the water, eager for their next meal. This zoo is one of the first of its kind. And allowed scholars to study and document animal behavior and physiology, and allowed people from other parts of the world to experience animals they would never see otherwise. Continuing on, you leave the garden and enter a covered walkway with illustrious paintings and colorful mosaics all around. Treading through the walkway are several groups of scholars debating and discussing various topics in Greek. In an enclave, a troop of actors appear to be practicing a scene from a play. An older man, who appears to be the playwright, watches and makes corrections to the actors' performances. The covered walkway leads into yet another enormous marble structure. This area is called the Museon, and it's where we get our word for museum. You smell the aroma of burning incense as you enter, and you can hear various musical instruments from a room deeper inside. In an open room towards the center of the structure, you see a massive block of stone with deep grooves jutting through. Around the stone is a sculptor, teaching half a dozen students his craft. Moving on, you hear a choir of women singing in harmony, followed by more music, this time from a harp. Here, throughout the museum, hundreds of mentors taught pupils the arts. Dance, pottery, music, painting, poetry, public speaking, sculpting, singing, Every form of art from the ancient world could be found here, being taught to the next generation. Deeper still into the Museon, you find expert orators showing off their finely tuned craft to an audience of students. Through a window, you see an enormous amphitheater on a hill, where a poet is reciting poetry to a modest crowd. In almost every enclave and chamber, you can hear philosophers debating grand themes and their ideas of the inner workings of the universe. Alongside those philosophers, you'll see theologians from around the world, confident in the tenets of their belief system, debating and discussing who or what they believed God or the gods to be. You turn right into a long hallway with marble pillars lining each wall. More ornate mosaic art passes beneath your feet. In a large chamber lit by the morning sun, you see huge maps of many regions in the Mediterranean. These are the cartographers' quarters, The best mapmakers in the world will venture here to collaborate on making some of the first accurate large-scale maps in the world. Next to that room is another library. This room contains thousands more scrolls from across the ancient world. This area is devoted to the study of history. Here, ancient historians tried to make a chronology of the ancient world. Historians here actually cross reference different accounts of events. This critical approach to history, which utilized various primary sources, informs how people study history today. Nearly everything we know about this time period and eras before it were recorded by historians here. Brisk winds fill your nose with the smell of salty sea air once again. You now find yourself on a large balcony overlooking the harbor. Hundreds more ships arriving all with merchants and scholars and knowledge to be collected, you turn on the balcony to get a view of the colossal campus with thinkers of all backgrounds inside its inner workings. Almost every idea in the ancient world would someday find its way here and eventually be recorded at this magnificent institute of learning. But this too shall pass. The Library of Alexandria is perhaps more famous for its destruction than its contents. However, the great library was not consumed in some cataclysmic fire, but something far more tragic. There were still fires, however, small fires that took out portions of the library. The first major account of the destruction of a portion of the library was from Plutarch, a Greek biographer of Julius Caesar. He wrote that during a civil war, one of Caesar's legions set fire to ships in the harbor. The flames soon consumed the docks, and the fire spread to the museum above. It is not known how many scrolls were lost, but since there are several accounts of the Library of Alexandria after this incident, it's safe to say that the library, or at least part of it, survived. Over the next few centuries, Alexandria found itself in the middle of several wars, Constant sieges and revolts and invasions pushed many academic scholars out of the city, and many parts of the library were either looted or severely damaged. In 391 AD, the Christian ruler Theodosius declared paganism illegal in the Roman Empire. Since the library itself was dedicated to the Greek muses, much of the library was torn down, and many attendants and curators of the library had to flee the city. Later, a Muslim military commander conquered Egypt and destroyed any writings that did not agree with the Quran. However, it wasn't just rulers and invaders' beliefs and destructions of certain buildings that led to the demise of the Great Library. See, the Library of Alexandria had a monopoly on papyrus, and as a result, many other places in the Mediterranean had to resort to a different type of material to write on, This resulted in the creation of parchment, a specially cured sheet made from animal skins. Parchment actually proved to be a longer-lasting material. Papyrus scrolls, if exposed to any humidity, would rot pretty quickly. Much of the Library of Alexandria may not have succumbed to fire, but to mold from too much water. With the combination of these factors, the Great Library simply faded into the sands and the sea as it failed to be utilized and maintained with later generations. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world that started with an incredible goal of amassing the entire world's knowledge went out, not with a bang, but with a whimper. However, the Library of Alexandria left a lasting legacy even today. It is believed that at least a portion of the collection of scrolls there was either transcribed or transported to other libraries in the Roman Empire or to other libraries in the Middle East, such as the House of Wisdom. These classical works and their eventual rediscovery are what sparked the Renaissance, which began the rapid technological and cultural rise to what we would call the modern world. Additionally, the setup of the library and museum in Alexandria informs the layout of modern university campuses today. This story may be the most tragic story I've ever done. I don't mean brutal or violent or despondent or emotional, just tragic in the most grand scale sense of the word. Because in the end, it's hard to overstate the tragedy of what we lost with the fall of the Library of Alexandria. We'll never know what incredible knowledge was held there, what great thinkers that time forgot, what great theories or historical timelines or technological advances or beautiful stories were lost forever. If that knowledge was preserved, if it was protected and funded If the men and women who were there knew the value that that library held for all of humanity, then maybe it would have survived. And maybe humanity would be more technologically advanced than we could imagine. Maybe scientific advances would have happened centuries before they did in our timeline. Maybe humanity would now be a spacefaring species, finding new homes amongst the stars. Or maybe we shouldn't be as sad about the destruction of the library. But we should be amazed that such a place even existed at all. The Library of Alexandria serves as a reminder that our greatest stores of knowledge may not be threatened by a seismic, cataclysmic event, but by societies that stop protecting and valuing the knowledge they have. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you're a fan of Historium, you can follow it on pretty much any social media platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know them. If you want to support the show and support me in my effort to tell the best history stories I can, you can donate on Patreon. That is the best way to support the show. If you can't support financially, then do me a favor and rate Historium on whatever platform you use to listen. Last piece of news, the Orbital Jigsaw Network just launched a new show recently called The Podience, which is your one-stop shop for all things Orbital Jigsaw, as well as being an incredible resource on the podcast community as a whole. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can check out The Podience wherever you listen to podcasts, and on orbitaljigsaw.com. As always, thanks for listening.